On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Margaret Mitchell. So I was really interested in figuring out how to create language that was human-like. I was just kind of fascinated by human cognitive processes. I was fascinated by language. Um, I really wanted to come to understand how, how we generate language Senior research scientist at Google, Margaret. Thanks for making time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, for people who are only guessing what that means, can you tell us what you actually do at work? Uh, yeah. So, I'm an AI researcher, which means that I work on machine learning um, and deep learning technology. Um, I work on vision and language, and so some of the stuff I do involves taking images and then figuring out how to translate them into like descriptions that a human can understand, uh, basically connecting different kinds of modalities uh, that a computer can process. That's great. Now you speak all over the place and have a great TED Talk. I think it has over a million views or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it's amazing to me. Yeah. Um, what do you think it is about um, the work you're doing that has caught so much attention? Well, I think that people are starting to really um, notice that machine learning is working relatively well, um, and it's it's starting to be called AI. Um, just a few years ago, the same techniques that we're using now was referred to as, as deep learning. Um, but now deep learning and a lot of other technology is just sort of broadly called AI. And then looking at the world through through that lens, you can start to see it you know, cropping up everywhere. Um, and with that comes different kinds of issues uh, of the technology reflecting historical biases and stereotypes, for example. Um, and so as people are starting to notice how ubiquitous this kind of technology is, they're starting to notice the kind of errors it makes um, and also the enormous potential it brings. Um, and so on both counts, I think people are paying a lot more attention to, to what's out there. Sure. So we hear a lot about it in the media, but for people who aren't following the space as well, what are some places that that machine learning AI is showing up that maybe folks may not even be aware of it, it being a part of their life or their technology? Um, that folks might not be aware of. Or just in general, what are some of the applications yeah. where it's yeah. making a lot so, of progress? So one of the areas that I've been working in that's that's a lot of um, that's causing a lot of attention right now is in what's called human-centric uh, technology. So things like detecting a person's face or detecting a pedestrian, uh, detecting kind of different face attributes like smiling. Um, so these are computer vision tasks for AI. Um, I also work on some language stuff that you guys, you know, the general audience would probably be familiar with. For example, uh, as you type a query into Google, it might start suggesting um, the the rest of your sentence, and that's also a kind of AI or machine learning task. Um, anytime you see a recommendations a recommendation system give you a ton of you know options, that's also often using AI technology. Um, it's sort of everywhere. Sure. So um, thinking about the show here, innovation and leadership, you guys are 
you guys are doing some pretty innovative things over there. But thinking about leadership, you know, whether at Google now or five years at Microsoft or other places you've been, when you think about um, leaders, especially that you've had interactions with, and you think about the ones that got the best work from you or the ones that maybe didn't invite you to bring your A-game to work, what, what are right. some of the observations that you see in this innovative space about different styles of leadership and their effectiveness? Yeah, one thing that I've noticed is that more so than than most other things, your management chain can really make or break your career. And so if you have a manager that gets you, that understands you know, your views and where you're going and why, then you can have an amazing time. You know, they'll help you get into new opportunities. And um, there's something really freeing that creates uh, better, better work, better output when you feel like your manager is just really getting you. Um, but when you have managers who are just kind of, uh, you know, doing their job, but, but not really clicking with you or connecting with you, um, it can be a lot more of a drudge and uh, your work you know, might not necessarily be as good. Um, one thing that I've, I've really come to appreciate um, uh, is managers who, who will advocate for you, who will say, you know, hey, she's not at the table and she should be. Um, that kind of thing is, is relatively rare in tech, but really, really important. Yeah. So for folks who are listening that might be leading a team that are thinking, well, I think I get my people, but who knows if they think I get them? What, yeah. what advice would you have for a leader or manager who wants to, you know, connect at that more at that deeper level? Yeah, I would say speak with your uh, with your employees about their concerns and how they're feeling. Um, if they feel like they're welcome, and if they don't feel like they're welcome, what are the the different aspects that are making them feel that way? And really listen to them, um, as opposed to you know trying to explain away or sort of correct or you know. Um, there's this phrase, you know, assume good intentions, which is said, you know, even as you're trying to explain things that are really hard and difficult to talk about. Um, and so I would say, you know, as an employee in tech, at least one thing that's really worked for me is having managers who really want to know how I feel and if I feel welcome. And then if I don't really listen and act on it. Yeah. When, when you think about contrasting those two, you know, huge tech giants, Microsoft and Google, what, mm -hmm. are, what are some strengths you see in the, the culture, the environment at Microsoft? And what are some strengths you see in the culture environment at, at Google? Yeah, so it, it's been interesting working at both companies because um, as an outsider, I had thought that they would essentially be the same because they're both, you know, big tech companies and um, I mean, it's easy to kind of just assume that they're going to have similar kind of operating procedures. Um, one thing that I really, really loved about Microsoft was um, I, w I worked at Microsoft Research. And the thing about Microsoft Research is that you can kind of do anything you want. It's, once, it's really, really um, competitive to become a Microsoft researcher. Um, but, what you, but once you do, you are, are free to experiment with whatever there's sort of um, – no, no really harsh constraints on what you can and can't do. Um, you know, very self-driven work um, and really open, interdisciplinary, um, not specifically focused on computer science. You know, you could also do social science work and all kinds of other stuff, art. Um, and that was something I just really, really valued at Microsoft Research. Um, 
one thing that I really, really like at Google is how well connected everything is. So it's really easy to know who's coding on what. It's really easy to uh, figure out all the different sort of projects going on. Um, it's really just kind of a well-networked place. And so figuring out who you need to talk to about what kind of thing um, is really, really simple. And that can lead to things being created very, very quickly, very rapidly, um, which is really, really fun to just, you know, you feel that sort of energy of things moving very fast. Interesting. Um, so, you, you know, there's a innovation author I'm a huge fan of named Stephen Johnson wrote a great book called Where Good Ideas Come From. Mm -hmm. And it really goes through like, the environments of innovation and oh. and just what a competitive advantage connection is, mm -hmm. um, you know, the chance for good ideas to bump into themselves, you know, like it, it's like they need time to incubate. People need to work on stuff and, and work on a slow hunch, but then they need their idea to bump into other people's ideas. Essentially right, his right, premise. Right. So yeah. when you think about the, you know, what you're talking about at this advantage of speed because of that, um, I'd ask the same question, you know, for those of us who would want our organizations to become more connected, do you see any lessons at Google that, you know, regardless of industry, somebody else could be yeah. to make their organization more like? Yeah, implement really good search. <laughs> I mean, it, it shouldn't, I guess it's not surprising that Google has really good search internally as well as externally. Um, but it's... <laughs> But um, I mean, I it was surprising to me when I came and I realized, you know, it shouldn't have been. But it's just it's so easy to just look up things and find who the people are and what the projects are and where the code is and all these kinds of things. And so um, really working on on being able to trivially search through all of the different things going on um, really, really helps. Um, another thing that I really think is useful is that we have a lot of mailing lists. Um, and that really connects communities together. And a lot of them are just sort of, ever, anyone is free to join, all different kinds of topics. Um, and that's something that's been, been really nice for like meeting people who otherwise I wouldn't meet, but who have like similar interests as me. Yeah. So um, I'm interested in another direction. You know, so many people are, like you said, they are waking up to what an advantage machine learning and, and AI could be to them. Um, thinking about, people who want to attract somebody like yourself to their organization, you know, like I'm looking, I'm stalking you on LinkedIn here. It looks like from the time <laughs> you started read college till after your PhD and doing your postdoctoral work, it looks like about 11 years of school. Is that, is that fair? Is that about accurate? Uh, yeah, that might be about accurate. Yeah. <laughs> and then now you've got years at Microsoft and Google and, and you're, you know, Ted talks with a million views and speaking at conferences around the world. Um, when it comes to organizations who would want to attract people of your quality to help them invent the future as well. Um, yeah. What, what kind of advice would you have for attracting, attracting that kind of talent that may not be completely obvious to people? Um, so one of the things that I look for that I know um, a lot of the people I really connect with at work look for are workplace environments that are inclusive. Um, and this also speaks to being in tech, but it's not enough to have, you know, amazing output or amazing publications. You want to see that, you know, there are people there who are black. There are people there who are Latinx. There are people there who are women. And, you know, as well as the intersections of all of these things. Um, because you know that if people are there from traditionally underrepresented groups and they've stayed there for longer than like six months, 
um, then this is a place where different perspectives, uh, different critical knowledge um, is welcome at the table. Uh, so this is probably one of the things that I look for more so than, you know, sort of fame and hype and all that kind of stuff. Um, I just really look for who the people are and, and how long they've stayed um, and who the, you know, different collaborators are on different projects. So if I see a project with like 10 names on it and they're all white males, that's a little bit of a flag to me that, you know, this place is probably not as inclusive as it could be. Um, so for me, I think this is probably one of the most important things. Um, I think that's true for a lot of other sort of underrepresented minorities in tech as well. We sort of pay attention to these things. And, and in your mind, if we're just going to keep talking about that subject, is it that when you think about an environment like that, that, uh, you feel like, um, if that's not present, that you're more likely to be discounted or what, what are the, what are the things that it signals to you when you when it doesn't feel like as, as accepting of an environment? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the whole reasons to have diversity is because you bring critical background knowledge that otherwise wouldn't be there. Um, and when you're in an environment where there's uh, a lot of people from very different backgrounds and very different experiences, that means that you're in a melting pot of a whole bunch of ideas, you know, from all different kinds of walks of life, all different um, kinds of, you know, creative views on things that will lead to, uh, I think, more interesting and hopefully, um, you know, farther looking out research than the kind of stuff if it was people with very similar life experiences. Um, so I think for me, it's a bit about figuring out, is this a place where lots of ideas, you know, no matter who they come from or where they come from, are, are welcome. Um, and when I see, you know, sort of more, more similar backgrounds, then it's, it's more of a concern that uh, it'll be more likely that they'll be looked down on or, or ridiculed or, you know, these kinds of things that can lead to more negative environments where you don't end up uh, giving it your A game, as you said, like putting out your best work. Sure. Well, uh, let's do this. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and then um, let I've got some more questions for you. Okay, sounds good. I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up Rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! Okay, so before the sponsor break there, um, we, we were talking about attracting top talent. Um, I guess another direction I'm super interested to hear your thoughts is, you know, the, the reporters who are themselves trying to figure out what machine learning and AI are, they can, they can only go so far with interpreting what this means for our future. And, the, yeah. and, and so we're all, you know, as we, the rest of us hear about this world, you know, we're getting it through the filter of people who do not have PhDs and, and in it every day of their life. Yeah. Um, when you think about the near-term future, kind of the next one to three years of this space, what are some of the things that you see coming down the pipe? Um, I think I see a lot more focus on multimodality. So that means like 
not just speech, but also vision, but also text, um, and possibly even modalities that haven't been as explored. So like touch um, and taste, um, those, those might all become more and more part of the game. Um, more about streaming information. So uh, things like uh, interpreting videos in real time, interpreting sounds in real time. Um, I see more about imposing um, what I've been calling normative constraints. So these are like what society says should and should not happen. Um, because when you learn from pure data in machine learning, you end up having um, a lot of historical and uh, problematic prejudices and biases. And so you can, you can impose these kind of normative uh, ideas about what should and should not be in order to create systems that you feel are more equitable or more fair. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more work in figuring out how to do that, um, not just imposed as constraints, but also as you're training the, the algorithms. Interesting. So uh, can you talk more about this touch and taste? You know, that's probably a bigger leap for folks to, to understand where that would play in. Oh, I actually don't know a lot about that area of research. It's just, this is a thing that people are working on uh, <laughs> a little bit. Sure. Um, and because there's an interest in multimodality, specifically vision, language, and speech, um, I, I can see that other modalities would probably come into, come into play. So, for example, you can have uh, a system that might be able to say whether this dish is going to be something that is exactly what you what you would want by aligning the the taste profile to what it understands your taste profile to be. Um, but this is still pretty preliminary stuff um, that I'd expect to see more of in the coming years. Yeah. So um, what is it about this space that you decided this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, so I was really interested in figuring out how to create language that was human-like. Um, I was just kind of fascinated by human cognitive processes. I was fascinated by language. Um, I really wanted to come to understand how, how we generate language um, and, and how I might be able to model that. Um, but then as I was doing it, um, it sort of became clear that doing a direct human model wasn't quite the right thing to do because we're not dealing with human brains when we're dealing with artificial intelligence. You know, we're not dealing with like serotonin and norepinephrine and stuff like that. Um, we're, we're dealing with computer systems. And so for me, it became more about figuring out how to produce output that's human-like, that humans can relate to in order for them to be assisted or augmented uh, in various ways that are interesting for them. Um, and less about the sort of uh, cognitive processes underlying the models. Um, and then as I worked more and more on producing human-like output, I was realizing that human-like uh, issues of bias and unfairness were also being learned and propagated and amplified. And so that also opened up another area of research for me, which was not only figuring out how to get to like human-like performance on tasks, but also to figure out how to do it in a way um, that that doesn't uh, further worsen social divides. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I was on um, so we have a charity called Child Rescue that 
we started about nine years ago that combats child trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I'd been asked to be on the board of the local chapter of UN Women. And uh, it's interesting with the bias work, how even the language of that can be uh, attractive or or push people away, depending on who, you know, who you're speaking to. And mm-hmm. I remember going to uh, a speech where the way someone described it is really what got me on board, you know, be- because I am a white male, right? We, we definitely, right. we get put under the microscope a lot, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, um, and, you know, when the, when they got up there and they described it as, you know, do you have a sister or a daughter or, or um, think about a woman in your life? that would you want them getting paid less money for the same job right kind of thing instead of this accusational approach purely by framing in terms because my my oldest daughter's 14 and you know if like if she doesn't put in the same effort as someone else i don't think she should get the same pay right just not different right right yeah But, but if like you know some boy from high school uh, and her get jobs and they do the same work with the same qualifications. I'll yeah, be exactly. super ticked. I'll be super ticked yeah. if they yeah. think that they can pay her less because they can get away yeah. with it, right? Yeah. And uh it, it is so interesting that framing, how framing is can become such a magnet, right? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I worry a bit that some of the conversation about inequality in tech ends up sounding accusational. I know some of the headlines have have kind of pointed out specific uh, types of individuals. Like um, I think uh, guys with hoodies was one, uh, white men problem was another one, but that kind of masks the fact that this is just something we all do, right? It's not like men against women or anything like that. It's people generally will prefer certain qualities, certain types of people and have similar biases if they're brought up in the same culture. So women can discriminate against women you know, just like men can. And so it's less of an us versus them kind of thing and more of a everyone (laughs) versus them kind of thing. So we're all in this together to try and figure out how to, um, how to address the issues realistically. Yeah, no kidding. Mm. Well, um, listen, we're about up for time for part one of the interview. But before we close here, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask guests is, uh, what's a piece of advice you would like to be able to go back and give a younger version of yourself? Um, I think it would probably be to, to realize that even when people sound super, super confident, they probably don't always know what they're talking about. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Um, Well, thanks everybody for listening. Please tune back into part two of our interview uh, with Margaret. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember... A year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run, and it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, 
change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.